Y'all turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50, 15 through 21. Genesis 50, 15 through 21. Uh, two elderly couples were visiting each other one day, and the men were sitting in the den in their easy chairs. The women were in the kitchen sitting around the table, and the man of the house was speaking to his friend, and he said, I don't know what to do with this woman I married. She just thinks I'm losing my mind, that I can't remember anything, and she wants me to take this medication, big old horse pills. And the guy said, well, what's it called? And he said, well, what's, what's the name of that, that flower with long stem, red petals, thorns? We give it on Valentine's Day. His friend said, a rose? He said, oh, yeah. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that medication? Sometimes we doubt things that we should believe. Sometimes we doubt people who we should trust. Ladies, I can't explain to you why a man will believe anything his friend tells him, but he won't believe anything you tell him. I don't understand why his wife is the least trustworthy person in his life, but that is the way we are sometimes as sinners. Sometimes a, a skeptical mindset can be a good thing, though. My father-in-law, who's in heaven now, is one of the godliest men I've ever known. He was also a man who was very successful in life, and he taught his four daughters, my wife included, that it's not good to be naive and gullible. His favorite saying was, believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. And that, that attitude served him well. But what about in our relationship with God? What about when we start to doubt some of the things we know about God or have been taught about Him or have read in the Scriptures? What, what do we do when we have those questions and doubts? We're, we're ending a series today, and the name of the series has been, Where is God? We, we just want to know, where is God in these various situations in life when we feel forgotten, when we've sinned terribly, when we're tempted to sin, when we don't want to forgive someone who's hurt us? And today we're going to talk about where God is when we experience doubts and questions. In a room this size, I promise you, nearly everybody has experienced this at one time or another. Some of you are going through this right now. I don't know who you are, but the Holy Spirit does. And I'm glad he brought you here this morning. We've been looking at the life of Joseph, a man who experienced so much of the ups and downs of life. He was born into a family in which he was one of 12 boys. That's bad enough. But of the 12, he was the favorite, and that brought the resentment of his brothers upon him. And when they gained an opportunity to get rid of him, they did. They sold him into slavery, let their dad believe that he had been killed by an animal. He was carried away to Egypt where he became a slave, and then later a prisoner, even though he'd committed no crime. He was forgotten in a dungeon for years until the day came where, in the providence of God, he stood before the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth at the time, and he foretold a great famine that was coming. And Pharaoh was so impressed with him, he took him from the prison and made him his prime minister, his right-hand man. He went from the lowest place on earth to being the second most powerful man on earth. And then came the day when suddenly his brothers stood before him. His brothers who came to him not knowing who he was, just wanting grain. They were starving to death back home in the promised land. And Joseph had his opportunity for vengeance after all these years. And he started down that process of putting them through pain when suddenly he saw in their hearts they were truly repentant. And he couldn't help but repent himself and forgive. And the family was reconciled. And we pick up the story today 
The, the brothers and, and their father, Jacob, have been living in Egypt with Joseph for years. Jacob now dies after a long and full and eventful life. And the brothers, including Joseph, make a pilgrimage back to the promised land where they were born to bury their father in the place where he requested. And then they come back to Egypt. And when they're back home in Egypt, old wounds begin to surface. Now, let's start with verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So you remember in The Godfather Part 2, for those of you that have seen it, those of you who haven't, that's okay, Marco Corleone, main character, finds out that his brother Fredo has tried to have him killed, and at first he's angry, but then he embraces Fredo in front of the family, and he forgives him publicly, but then after their mother dies, he puts out the word, Fredo has to die. And that's what we think humankind is like. That's the way we expect people to behave. When someone wrongs you, and you gain the power and the ability to pay them back, you do it. That's what we expect. And that's what Joseph's brothers expected. He's now, he now has power over us and our dad's not around anymore. I know what he said in the past, but now everything's changed. Now surely we're going to get what's coming to us because that's the way the world works. I had a friend once, her name was Mary. She was actually my grandmother's best friend in the world. Mary was one of the sweetest, most sincere Christians I've ever known. Uh, she used to, she had these funny ways of mispronouncing words. She didn't say push, she said push. We, we still say that just for fun in honor of, of Mary. Um, but Mary had doubts about her salvation. She'd been a Christian since she was a young woman and now she was in her 70s and getting close to 80, and yet she would come to me. I was her pastor at the time, and she would come to me and say, I just don't know. I just don't know that I'm really saved. I, I know that I prayed. I know that I was sincere. I know what the Bible says. I just don't feel forgiven. And I remember saying to her, well, Mary, your salvation isn't based on a feeling. It's, it's based on a fact that Jesus accepts you for who you are, that he, he forgives your sins if you just come to him in repentance. And, and so you know, you know that's true. So it doesn't matter how you feel. It's not a feeling, it's a fact. I don't know if I ever reassured her. I do know that she's in heaven now and she's as reassured as you can possibly be. But maybe some of you feel that way this morning. Maybe you would say to me, I know what the Bible says and I know that I was sincere when I accepted Christ. I just, I just know how dark my own heart is. And I know the evil thoughts that I have and the bad things that I've done that nobody else knows and I can't possibly tell you. And I know how insincere I am when I come into worship sometimes just mouthing the words. You doubt God's mercy. You doubt his ability to forgive and accept someone like you. Or maybe you doubt something else. Maybe you've seen horrible things in the news. It seems like they happen once a week, if not once a day these days. 
And maybe during one of these awful, awful events, you've said, how could a God who's good allow this to happen? Or something awful has happened to you, and perhaps you've said, if God really loves me, he wouldn't have let me go through this. Maybe, maybe in studying the Bible or in sitting through a sermon, you've heard something that just didn't seem to square with reality, or, or maybe uh, what the scriptures say seems to contradict what you know from science, or maybe in listening to an unbelieving friend who you respect, you've started to feel really foolish for what you believe, as if maybe we're just chasing after fairies and unicorns and dragons, and they're in the real world, and we're in a fantasy land, and what does God do when we feel this way? What does God do when we doubt his existence or his love or his mercy or his power or his wisdom? How does God react? We're going to take a break from Joseph's story for just a moment. We'll get back to it in a moment. But I want you to know that if you experience doubts about God or questions about him, you're in good company. The Bible has numerous stories of men and women who go through a lot, who who went through a, a lot of what you and I have been through in terms of doubting God. Think about Job, for instance. Job, in the book of Job, says that he was the most righteous man on earth at the time. And yet when he lost everything, experienced unspeakable tragedy, he publicly questioned God's justice. How could a God who's good allow this to someone like me? And he had these friends who hovered over him saying, hey, keep that down. Don't say those things. You just have to keep on trusting in God. Sarah was chosen by God to be the mother of his people, the Jews, and yet she was an old woman. She'd never been able to have children. When that pregnancy test kept coming up negative, she lost faith. She told her husband Abraham, you might as well have a baby with our handmaiden because it's not happening with me. She doubted God's power and his ability to make make miracles happen. Elijah is one of my favorite biblical characters because he's everything that I'm not. He's, he's brave and he's bold and, and he's fearless. And yet, just a few days after standing down 450 prophets of Baal and calling down fire from heaven and impressing the crowds, he was so depressed, he flopped down under a, a broom tree and he prayed to God and said, just kill me now. I'm no good. Just take my life. Let's not forget that one of Jesus's 12 disciples is known as Doubting Thomas and not because he was skeptical about Santa Claus or global warming. I mean, he's Doubting Thomas for a reason. And then there's John the Baptist. Of all God's people, John the Baptist may have been the boldest of all. Here's a guy who lived in the wilderness by himself, dressed in camel skin, ate bugs for breakfast. When people came to see him, to listen to him speak, because he was a powerful speaker, he would yell at him. He, he, was, the, he was basically the anti-Osteen. He would say, you, you are snakes and sinners. What are you doing here? God doesn't want you. He called out a king for his adultery and lost his head for it. He was the first to ever acknowledge Jesus as Messiah and baptized our Lord in the River Jordan. And yet, when he was moldering away on death row, he lost all hope and sent a message to Jesus saying, are you really the one we've been waiting for or should we look for someone else? So what does God do with people like that? What does God do when we doubt? Based on those stories, I know three things. Three things. Number one, he understands. He understands our questions. He understands our doubts. He understands that things don't make sense to us and that hurts our faith. 
You may know this if you've read Steve Jobs' biography, but he was raised in church. When he was 13 years old, he saw a picture of a starving child in Biafra on the cover of Life magazine. He took that magazine to his pastor's office and he held it up and he said, does God know about this? And his pastor very unapologetically said, yeah, God knows about it. And Jobs felt like the pastor was offended that he was questioning God in any way. And so he left and he never entered a church again. He dabbled in Buddhism later in life, but never really believed in a personal God after that. Dave Kinnaman has done extensive research with young men and women who have left the faith when they got to college or young adulthood. And he's discovered some of the things that drove them away from Christianity. He said that one of the things they have in common is many of them said, when I was young, I had doubts and questions about faith and my church was not a safe place to express them. They judged me. They made me feel bad. They said, we don't ask those kinds of questions around here. But God never treated doubters that way in the scriptures. God never condemned anyone for having honest questions and struggling to believe. Job spends 37 chapters railing against God, and God shows up in the 38th chapter. And and in, in those chapters, you see the longest single speech of God in the entire Bible. And at the end of it, he says to Job's four judgmental friends who were so certain of their beliefs, he says, you know, Job is the one who really knows me, so you better ask him to pray for your souls. Far from condemning Job, he exalts him. Sarah uh, did a terrible thing when she encouraged her, her husband to commit adultery because she didn't believe in God's promise. And yet God still gave her a baby. The baby Isaac came through Sarah I think about doubting Thomas and, and how, how he doubted that Jesus had really been raised from the dead. And Jesus showed up and said, put your fingers in these holes. If, if you don't have any other belief, here's, here's your help. Elijah wanted to die, wanted to commit suicide. God picked him up, dusted him off, and sent him on another mission. And when John the Baptist expressed doubt about whether Jesus was Messiah. And they brought that message to Jesus, standing in front of all those crowds, embarrassing him in front of the crowds. Jesus' response was, you know, John, John's the most righteous man I've ever known. God does not condemn you if you have doubts. God does not judge you if you have questions. He understands. And so I want to say this very carefully. This church is a safe place for you to express your questions and your doubts. If you have questions and doubts and you want to write them on your prayer card and turn them in and I'll get them and and the staff and I, somebody will contact you, we'll sit down and talk. If you want to shoot me an email, I'd, I'd like nothing better than that. But what's even better than that, if if you would join a life group and bring up your questions and doubts in there. And you'll find there are people in that group who've struggled with some of the same things and maybe they've come to the answers and they can help you or maybe they're right in the process and you can together discover God's truth. That's what life groups are for. That's what the church is for. Please understand, folks, in all the gospels, in all four gospels, Jesus never once turned down any person who was seriously, honestly seeking the truth, no matter how weak their faith might be. Second truth, second thing I know. He has the answers. Jesus has the answers. Think about that story about John the Baptist in prison. When he asked Jesus, are you the one? Jesus' response to him was not, well, I don't know. Now that you mention it, maybe I better go off and find myself. 
Aren't you glad? No, Jesus sent back a message that said, hey, John, I've been healing blind people. I've I've been preaching the gospel to the poor. I've been liberating people from all kinds of prisons. I've been doing everything the Old Testament prophets said I would do. So let that reassure you. Jesus had the answers. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you find out that what drew people to Jesus over and over again wasn't his miracle-working power. It was the fact that he taught with authority. All their other teachers in those days, they didn't know God. They just knew a few things about him. And they would stand up and they would say, well, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi so-and-so says that, and who knows where the truth is. They were guessing about God, and it showed. But when Jesus stood up and talked, he would stand up and boldly say, thus saith the Lord. Here is who God is, and here's what he says, and here's how you can come to know him and be saved. And everyone who heard him said, who is this guy? He seems to know God personally. Jesus had the answers. Jesus knows the truth. So again, let me say this to you who right now are struggling with doubts, with with questions. My advice to you is take those questions to God. Because our tendency, our unfortunate tendency is when our faith starts to become weak, when we start to have questions and doubts, we drop out of church because we think, well, I don't want to go there. Everybody there is certain and they're going to judge me. So I, I better go over here. And we don't talk to our Christian friends. We surf the net asking questions. We, we, we gaze at our own navels. We wonder and we ponder instead of going to the one who can give you answers. Folks, let me tell you something. If my wife or my children ever doubted my love for them, I would want them to ask me. I wouldn't want them to go talk to all their friends and say, do you think he loves me? Do you think he's a good guy? I would want them to come and say, Dad, you weren't there for me. Are are you sure you love me? Dad, I'm just not sure. You you made some decisions I don't agree with. Are, Are you really on my side? God is the same way. He's a far better father than me. If you come to him and you say, Lord, here's what I'm struggling with, he will not be offended. He has the answers. Now, I cannot promise you that God's going to just rain down knowledge on you right on the spot. Sometimes God lets us wrestle with questions and issues for a while because that's how we grow. Sometimes the answers are beyond our comprehension, and he has to get us to a certain level of maturity before we can accept them. God knows, but he's the only one that has the answers. So go to him. He understands. He has the answers. And third, we know that he is bigger than our doubts. Our doubts do not stop his purposes. I love verse 20 in our story, getting back to Joseph. Verse 20 is my favorite verse in all of Genesis. Joseph looks at his brothers who are just terrified. They're they're on their knees before him. Think back to his dream, remember? The dream told him they would bow down before him someday. He didn't know it would be in this circumstance. And he says, don't you guys understand what you intended for harm? God meant for good. You were just trying to get rid of me. You acted out of hatred. God allowed that to happen and then turned it into something incredible. Joseph says, you know, I didn't understand this for a long, long time. I was a a slave. I was a prisoner. I wondered why I'd been abandoned. I wondered why uh, God had given me those dreams of of greatness when I was a kid, only to, to send me to the lowest place on earth as an adult. And now I look back and I understand. If you hadn't sold me into slavery, I never would have gone to Egypt. 
If I hadn't gone to Egypt, I wouldn't have ended up in Potiphar's house. If I hadn't ended up in Potiphar's house, I wouldn't have ended up in prison. If I hadn't ended up in prison, and if I hadn't been forgotten there for two years, then I wouldn't have been there at exactly the right time when the famine was about to strike and Pharaoh pulled me out of jail, and that's exactly when I had to be there. And all those things had to happen just right in order for me to prophesy this famine so Pharaoh would store up food, so you could live, so we could be reconciled, so everybody could be saved. God knew what was going on. So I may have doubted him before, but it didn't stop him from doing this incredible miracle. And you may doubt my forgiveness now, but it doesn't stop me from forgiving you. Friends, I want to say this to you. There may be people, in fact, there probably are people in this room that right now are going through the most difficult experience they've ever had in their lives. And I don't know what it is. It could be some of you are experiencing the end of of an important relationship, maybe going through divorce, maybe going through uh, grieving a, a loved one who has died. There's nothing that I can say to take away that grief. You may be having to care for a loved one who's in a, who's in a state of decline and you're losing them day by day, memory by memory. Or it may be you that's, that's declining. Maybe you are experiencing a loss of health and you just see your body failing and there doesn't seem to be any hope. It may be you've lost your job or you know your job is in jeopardy and you're struggling financially and you don't know where the money's gonna come from to pay the bills and you've lost your self-esteem. There may be something completely different that I haven't even mentioned, but there are people, I have no doubt, in this room who are struggling in ways that that we can't even comprehend. And for those of you who are struggling, here's what I want to say. I can't take away your pain, and what I'm about to say is not going to answer all your questions, but my advice to you, my advice to you is that you pray to God and you say, Lord, I know you can fix this. I don't know when you're going to do it. I don't know why you're allowing this, but I choose to trust you. I choose to believe in you, even though I can't see what you're doing, even though I don't know why you're doing what you're doing. I choose to trust in you because I know someday like Joseph, I'm going to look back and say, I'm glad. I'm glad I stuck with God. Long ago, there were these two two friends, Chuck and Billy, Chuck and Billy were, were two young preacher boys. Uh, and these were the days right after World War II when the church was booming, when the gospel was spreading like wildfire. Chuck and Billy were, ten, were talented, they were intelligent, they were handsome young men, they were powerful young preachers. This international organization uh, brought them in and sent them on crusades around the world preaching the gospel, and they won thousands to Christ. Chuck was by far the more intelligent and talented of the two, and he carried a dark secret. Chuck didn't actually believe in what he was preaching. Somewhere along the way, he'd started to have doubts about the truth of God's word, and those doubts had, blown into full, had grown into full-blown disbelief. And one day, he confessed to Billy. He said, you know, truth is, we've, you've, been, you've been saying that God's been saving all these people. God hadn't been doing a thing. I've been manipulating these people. I didn't even believe what I was saying, and yet they're coming down just because I've been saying the right things. He said to Billy, don't you understand? This book is just a book. You're committing intellectual suicide if you believe it's anything more than that. It, it can't possibly be God's word. It's ridiculous. It's nonsense. That man's name was Charles Templeton. He left the Christian faith and became a journalist in Canada. He hosted a TV show for years. He wrote several books, one of which described his 
departure from Christianity. It was very, very popular in the day. Late in life, in the 1990s, just before he died, Lee Strobel, the Christian author, went and interviewed Charles Templeton, wanted to see if he had changed his mind, and no, he hadn't. He said, no, I still think Orthodox Christianity is nonsense. But when Strobel asked him, well, what do you think about Jesus? These were his words, and I quote exactly. He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. He is the most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learn from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. And at that, he began to weep uncontrollably and refused to say anything more. Sadly, Charles Templeton died in 2001, and as far as anyone knows, he never came back to Christ. The 50 years earlier, in the late 1940s, when he publicly left Christianity, his friend Billy was devastated. I mean, think about it. Not only has your friend walked away from the faith, but he's someone you looked up to, someone who's more talented, more intelligent than you. Can it really be? Can, can he really be right? Maybe all this time I've been preaching a lie. Billy went back home to North Carolina and spent some time just praying and seeking and wondering. One night in the woods outside his parents' house, he was walking in the moonlight and just praying to God. And there was a stump of an old oak tree right there. And he just felt led to kneel beside that oak tree and pray. And his prayer was something like this, Lord, I don't have the answers but I believe that you do. I don't know all these questions. I don't know where they lead, but I know that you died for me and I know that you rose again. And so, so I know you have the answers and the answers will come in time. I'm just going to choose to trust in you. I'm going to preach you from this day forward without ever apologizing because you're my king. Folks, understand something. There are two scriptures I want you to know. If, if you're like Billy, if, if, if you're struggling with your faith, one is, in all, God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. In all things, God is at work, even when we can't see him. So when you say, Lord, I'm going to choose to trust in you, you're making a good decision. God is working. The second scripture I want to share with you is from Jesus. He said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed, but it's tiny. What God is saying is, your faith may be weak right now, but that's okay. I can use weak faith. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the size of the God in whom you place your faith. So I don't care how strong or weak your faith is. If you say, Lord, I, I'm, I'm full of doubt, but I choose to trust you now. God can do amazing things in your life, just like he did with Billy. Because his name was Billy Graham, actually, if you haven't figured it out yet. And a few weeks after he prayed that prayer, he preached a crusade in Los Angeles, and thousands of people were saved. The crusade lasted for weeks and weeks. It was covered across the nation. It launched his evangelistic career from that day forward. He preached the gospel more powerfully than anybody who's ever lived, and only God himself knows how many folks are saved through that ministry. So that one prayer, that one decision to say, Lord, I trust you even though I don't have the answers, it changed history. It's one of the most important events of the 20th century. What do you think will happen if you do the same thing? 
Say, God, I don't know. I don't know the answers, but I know you and I trust you. And you're going to give me the answers in your time. In the meantime, I'm just going to follow what you say. I sure hope you'll try that.